This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Talking today with the Oxford historian Peter Frankopan about his book, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World. The Silk Roads, Peter, have been long understood as the trade caravan routes running from the east coast of the Mediterranean across Central Asia to the western frontiers of China, and you tell many tales across the distance of five millennia. Maybe you can begin by giving us a sense of the shape and scale of your enterprise and why a new, not an old, history of the world. Well, I was very lucky as a boy. My, my parents bought me a, a map that, I, that they let me put up on a on a wall uh, with blue tack, uh, which is not great for, for for the plaster. But I would stare at that map as I tried to fall asleep every night, and I could never quite work out why it was that I was only being taught the history of a tiny part of the globe. Everything I learned at school, even as a six, seven-year-old boy, was all about Europe. And in fact, it wasn't even about the whole of Europe. It was really about, about Western Europe. You know, I was a child of the Cold War growing up in the 1970s, 1980s. My, my kids today find it impossible to understand that you know, we used to have drills of learning how to hide under our desks at school in case there was a, a you know, nuclear, nuclear war. But it, it seemed to me, even as a little boy, that there were distortions in the fact that there was such a limited geographical spread that all I could see, all the music I listened to, all of the films that I saw, everything I knew about was all to do with Western Europe and the United States. And these other parts of the world were passed over in my classroom in, in complete silence. And, and that was, I think, one epiphany. What made it more mis- what more mystifying to me was, you know, as a seven-year-old boy, having a lesson about Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was a, you know, it's an easy, is an easy figure to get young students excited about. You know, here's a man who's taught by Aristotle. Uh, he's the heir to some of the great legacies of ancient Greece. And, you know, by the age of 30 or so, he famously bursts into tears because he, he feels he's conquered the world. And uh, that, that sense of ambition, that sense of no boundaries, of expanding horizons uh, was fascinating to me. But I, I just couldn't understand why, if Alexander the Great was so ambitious, and if Europe was so important, why it never crossed Alexander the Great's mind to go and conquer the rest of Europe? You know, the ancient Greeks always looked to Asia. The cast of our world that we see things so in terms of democracy, in terms of that, that link back to the classical past, the removal of Asia, of the Persian world uh, and of its heirs, uh, seems to me one of, the, one of the great missing links in history. And it, and it means that our, our past, how we see things, is, is really a sort of a, a sense, a series of mythologies rather than histories. And I, I start my book but more or less being struck by a lightning bolt. When my, my parents gave me a book when I was 10 or 12 or, 12 or, 12 or 13, I guess. And uh, it was written by an author who at the beginning sort of complains about the fact that we have this narrative that is familiar to all of us, that you know, ancient Rome leads to ancient Greece leads to Rome. Rome heads towards a Christian empire that eventually turns into the Renaissance. From there comes the Enlightenment and then political democracy, the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, and then those two, those great things, industry and democracy, eventually end up with the United States. And that line backwards to the past feels very secure, very comfortable to us. And, and it's the story we all get told and taught, taught about. But that imbalance of how the world really is, 
you know, it's very unnerving. So I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, an academic based at Oxford University, one of the world's greatest universities over many centuries. And we have a, a, a natural history museum here where there are 27 statues on the wall of the world's greatest scientists, many of whose names would be familiar to those listening to this podcast, like Galileo, Charles Darwin, Euclid, Pythagoras, people like that. Uh, but there's not a single scientist recognized, even in my own university, you know, it's statues. It's not, it's not entirely fair to say that we, we, that's how we think about the world exactly. But there's not a single scientist from, from India, from the Arabic world, uh, from China, from Iran, or, or from anywhere else, actually. There's not, there's not a woman there either, by the way, uh, which has its own story. But that, that way in which we look back at the past is both misleading and needs a correction, but it's also not helpful to look at the world that way. These centers of power that dominate over long periods of time, because for me, the things that are most interesting about us as, as, as a species, us as a, as a group of individuals on this planet, is the way we interact with each other, the, how we share ideas, how we share language, how we share thoughts about food, tastes, how do we learn new experiences. That, that I think, is humans at their absolute finest. And it seems to me that the greatest levels of exchange in our, in our, in our past all take place along the spine of Asia in the, in the link between East and West. You know, there are lots of people who write about China right now uh, or about the rise of India and try and look back into the past. But for me, the thing that's most interesting are the ways in which arteries and veins have pumped ideas, goods, currencies, languages in all sorts of different directions. You know, we, we do have this sense that somehow we've come from the East and these connections eastwards are important. And uh, as it happens, that's in fact biologically true. You know, that Europe was an unpopulated continent and the waves of migration, one I today might call them refugees or economic migrants, I suppose, but has, has come in a succession from four or 5,000 BC over the course of many, in many different waves. And uh, I think that that connection to the East even comes back to our origins of of, of who we are. You know, the Garden of Eden was always thought to lie between the Tigris and the Euphrates. You know, that sense that that's where the world began is, is also where crops were first grown and cultivated. The first cities were created. The first laws were promulgated in this, in this bit in the middle, this bridge between East and West. Among the many roads explored in your book are those taken by three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all emerge from the Middle Eastern sand. Across the same deserts, the old Romans shipped gold to China in return for pepper and silk. The Mongol hordes brought death and destruction from Samarkand to Vienna. The Arabs carried mathematics and the number zero from Baghdad to Venice. Also the learning of Greek antiquity to Rome, Florence, and Milan. Over your many and various Silk Roads, Peter, a lot of heavy traffic in goods and ideas in the markets for hellfire and heaven. That's ex exactly right. I mean, I think there are two parallel but separate stories. One is, you know, the, the old tourism, the winner's right history. And, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that the West, which by which I mean in North America, uh, the Western civilization, Western Europe, uh, has had a very good last three or 400 years, let's put it that way, you know, uh, since 1600, the age of empires where Europe took over essentially a great a great majority of, of the world. And as a result, 
our, our writers, our politicians, our theorists, you know, our artists as well, have reflected on the fact that, you know, well, this wasn't a coincidence and how did the West rise? And it was important, therefore, to make connections back to the past that sort of justified and explained why it was that, uh, you know, white men in Western Europe seemed to have everything falling into their lap, wealth, riches, and power. And, uh, you know, so I think that, that the winners writing history, trying to unpick some of that is important, because when, when, you're, when you are telling that story, then it, it doesn't really matter to a certain extent what other people on the other side of the globe have done, because, you know, you, you're writing a story that pleases yourself. But second, which is, which is like I said, separate but, but related, well, what is the history of these parts of the world? You know, what, what, where, what, what did happen? What was important? And equally, why did they lose out? Because, uh, you know, I, I, I think 500 years ago, if they'd been equivalent to podcasts, uh, there's no, there's no question that you wouldn't have been based in the United States and I wouldn't have been based in Oxford. You know, we would have both have been, I don't know, you'd have been in, in somewhere in Imperial China, I suppose. And I would have been somewhere in maybe Samarkand or maybe Isfahan or, or Merv, a very imp- unpromising sounding city. Your very well read listeners will all know that that's in, in Turkmenistan. But Merv, a thousand years ago, was considered the most beautiful and, and probably the largest city in the world a millennium ago. And scholars and culture and ideas and tolerance, of course, also flowed along these these highways. Because I suppose a slightly blunt way of looking at the, uh, some of the things I talk about, I suppose, is that generally there is a link between prosperity, scientific advancement, and and tolerance, both of religion, skin color, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that enlightenment that we are comfortable with and familiar with as being hallmarks of the West, you know, you could find in other parts of the world at different times when in fact it, it was almost a mirror image. So a thousand years ago, writers writing, uh, particularly in the, in the Arabic world, would, would describe the world they saw around them. They'd describe the, the, the steps of Central Asia. They'd explain China and its sophistication and so on. They'd get to Southeast Asia and then they'd swing around and get to Europe and they'd say, look, there's just no point us writing about these people because they settle all their arguments through violence. They're good at building castles and prioritizing men with beards who have swords, but they don't, they don't create anything. They don't make anything of beauty and they don't in fact revere the sciences. And there's a, there's a large discussion that goes on between scholars, particularly in the Arabic world, saying how is it that this world of Euclid and Pythagoras and those great scientists and mathematicians whose work is being poured over in great detail in the East how is it that Europe that used to produce these scientific minds is now not interested in ideas? And you find sort of answer to that, in fact, in works like, like um, St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the great uh, church fathers, who says, who absolutely says that the, the, the role of men on this earth or mankind on this earth is not to question God's will. It's not to explore the sciences or ask difficult questions or try to challenge what is accepted, but rather to accept that, that, that what God has put on this earth in front of of us. So almost an entire mirror image of, I suppose, how we see the world today, where the West is imbued with tolerances and so on and so forth, and other parts of the world screaming out their own uh, flaws and, and, and failings. But, you know, I think as a, as a historian, my job is not to provoke for the sake of it. I think it's just to provide some perspective. And I think even, even there, when we talk about the enlightenment of the West, you know, it is important to constantly remind ourselves that we've learnt about persecution of religion 
uh, in the worst possible way, because we certainly in Europe anyway, we're not all responsible for it. And it's, it's hard to voice the sins of the parents and the grandparents on, on their descendants. But, you know, the, the religious persecution within the continent of Europe was far worse, you know, was the worst that, that has been seen in the history of, of humankind. You know, in, in my parents' lifetime, the Holocaust was perpetrated. And so we, we learned through that. We learned through criminalization of gender or sexuality, through intolerance of people's skin color, of their religious beliefs and so on. We've learned how to be tolerant, and I, I, maybe compassionate isn't, isn't even fair because we, we were capable of committing these acts of persecution on our on our fellow citizens, inhabitants, and so on. And so, you know, our narrative of the, of the West does need to have a, a constant kicking of the tires, I guess, to make sure that it does actually stand up to scrutiny. That we're not just looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying everybody should be more like us. A wonderful thing about your book, Peter, is you're drawing on sources and texts in 16 languages. I know you read Arabic and Russian, but with what other languages have you become acquainted on your travels in time? I can read all the European languages, uh, except for Hungarian and uh, Finnish. And I, I'm not sure that either are on my sort of hit list to, to you know, because they're, they're complicated languages. But I think we think of languages, particularly in, in Britain, as immensely complicated and almost un, unfathomable. But I suppose a bit like how you look at the world, these lots of these languages are, are linked and related to each other. And, you know, if you can negotiate Italian, you know, getting Spanish and Portuguese, you know, they are very different, but you know, it's not, it's not so hard to put them together. Once you have a foundation in the Slavonic languages, then again, the clusters add themselves and, and Germanic and Scandinavian languages too. So I, I, I know here in the, in the UK, you mentioned that you can cope with more than one language and, and people sort of feel that they should give you a prize or a medal. For me, you know, it's, 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 there are lots of degrees and, and abilities and competences in languages and, and exactly what does it mean to be able to speak things fluently. But to, but to be able to read what other people are saying, you, you know, as we know in all of our languages, it's important to understand what people mean as what as what they say and and those words if you translate them like for like don't always mean the same thing you know i, I learned that again as as a boy going skiing with with family in in italy and in italian we were sort of again eight or nine years old you can tell how how formative my experiences were by the way and he said you know are you any good at skiing and having been brought up in britain I said, you know, I'm okay. And he said, well, you should ski with the five-year-olds uh, because I'm obviously Olympic standard. And, you know, he, he you know, fell over straight away. And just because he says one thing doesn't mean that that's the same thing. And those nuances of, of realizing that people will... They don't, they're not saying things that just for what, what you want to hear, but there are different ways of understanding language beyond the strict structures of the grammar and the vocabulary. It's, it's being able to read also between the lines. And one of the great skills for a really good historian and, you know, amongst my peers is, is filtering those texts that these wonderful scholars have written in the past and making sure that you are not being misled by what they say. Because also all written sources, you know, they are somewhere between the National Enquirer on the one side and, you know, uh, very politicized, high-level works of scholarship on the other. And we, we, know, we know with both of those that there are things that get left out, there are things that get colored in, uh, you know, there are, there, it depends who's paid for that research or who's going to be reading it. But, but to be able to use your judgment Christianity is a religion that comes out of Asia. The language of Christ is Aramaic. And, and Christi- I mean, that, and that's one good reason why Christianity spreads much quicker eastwards 
into Asia than it does into Europe. And again, you know, something like Christianity we think of as the quintessential European religion today because of the Pope and because of the Archbishop of Canterbury or the structure of the church and missionary activity by empires of Europe. But, um, Christianity, which was born in Palestine and, uh, and uh, you know, that's where Jesus Christ lived, died and, and resurrected and so on. The, the spread of his disciples and those who heard about Christianity was much more uh, aggressive, for want of a better word, eastwards to the point that you have bishops and archbishops right across the spine of Asia, even up to China by, by, the, by the 600s. And in fact, in 635 AD, uh, you know, which is six, 700 years before Christianity properly embeds in Scandinavia, a thousand years before it really reaches the Americas, the emperor of China gives permission for Christianity to be, evan- to be used and for evangelism to take hold in China, presumably because there are already so many Christians knocking about in the East. So the way we look at the world, the way which we try to uh, look at the past is is very much broken down by the fact that we have our our prejudices and our preconceptions of what we think happened, and being able to sort of go back to the beginning and show what the evidence looks like is is I think incredibly important. Alexander the Great in the fourth century B.C. extended the reach of the empire into the countries we now know as Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan. Greek sculpture still stands in the valleys of the Tigris and the Euphrates on the shores of the Indian Ocean. That's exactly right. I mean, in fact, uh, Alexander was uh, was a very keen um, uh, city builder. But one of the things that was the most interesting byproduct of what he brought with him was Greek theology. And right across the center of Asia, you know, these were these are largely Buddhist areas uh, by this time. And of course, the the idea of Buddhism is about self control, uh, self denial. You know, making sure that you live a good and virtuous life where material doesn't make you happy. You know, that's one of the sort of boiled down versions, I guess. And when the Greeks arrive with Alexander and they start building up their temples, quite often they put statues of the god Apollo, who is a sort of almost antithesis of Buddha, really. He's a god who likes to enjoy himself. Uh, he loves his music. He certainly loves his food and his wine. And in due course, you can read in the uh, Buddhist texts complaints by Buddhist monks and scholars saying, we're finding it hard to compete against an image uh, that is uh, about entertainment and about uh, enjoyment. And, and Buddhist ritual is overhauled in order to try to compete with this new arrival that's obviously gathering a lot of uh, adherents. And, and in fact, even this, th- those statues of the Buddha that we see today, who definitely looks like the Buddha enjoys his food and his wine, there's no emaciated visualization of the Buddha before the Greeks. And in fact, even, even portraying the Buddha is very, very unusual uh, beforehand. is a direct response to the idea that competition is required, that, that religions and ideas need to fight with each other, they borrow from each other, they compete, because, you know, that, that phrase, hearts and minds, you know, is not something that is new in the 21st century. You know, winning hearts and minds was as important two and a half thousand years ago as it is today. And, and in fact, to, to, the, to the extent that even, even the idea of globalization that we read about in the press a lot, and we sort of think that that's something new and is a great challenge for the world and the byproducts, you know, one can, I think, genuinely talk about a globalized world, uh, you know, again, two millennia, two millennia ago, maybe the Americas were out of this, the network connecting Europe and Asia and Africa at that time. But the only thing that's new today is the speed at which we can exchange ideas, information, and we can get from A to B. But, you know, 2000 years ago, Rome, as you, as you said, is, is trading uh, via intermediaries with, uh, with Central Asia, with India, with China. And that the scale of this 
trade is is huge. I mean, there are there are there are imperial groups or of nomads in northern India who start two thousand years ago to uh, create new coins based on the weight and the look of Roman coinage because so much cash is flowing into the east from uh, from from Rome because rich people, as we know today, want to have the best they can afford. And also, it's important if you're rich to have not just the best you can afford, but to be able to show that you are different to other people, which is why silk is so so important too. Because silk was currency. Silk was often used as currency. Um, we find that from Chinese sources and Chinese accounts, but it was, and it was used, uh, it was highly prized in the nomadic world of which becomes the Huns and the Mongols, uh, and so on, uh, to be able to, to allow uh, the ruler to show who was important in, in their world. And in fact, although that sounds very unusual to us, that's essentially how the, the, how any, how any armed force works. You know, the general wears a different uniform to the lieutenant colonels and the colonels. You know, that, that you, you are visibly different. If you are of a higher rank, you wear something different. And there might be gold epaulettes on your shoulders or more stripes or whatever it was. But clothing was used as an important marker of power. And whoever could choose to give out these uniforms or these clothes uh, was, was the source and origin of that power. So it's used as currency. It's used. It's used as a control mechanism, and it's also used as, a, of course, as a, a real lubricant in trade. Because most of the trade along the Silk Roads is sort of local. It's village to village and town to town. But the stuff that does go over longer distance is the elite and the expensive things, because the margins are higher, because the people at the other end are prepared to pay high prices. And in fact, it is important that we talk about Silk Roads. I mean, in fact, the phrase itself uh, was was quite recent. It's only brought up at the end of the 19th century. And these days, tour companies love to talk about the Silk Road as though there's one. You know, this this the, the, what we should imagine, I think, is a, a network, a sort of mesh, like a spider's web of lots of multiple connections. And just because something comes in one direction from east to west, you always need to ask what's going in the other direction too. I think we tend to think of Asia as always giving towards Europe, but you know, things are going back in the other direction, including uh, very large numbers of slaves at certain periods of time. In Afghanistan, the towns now known as Kashgar and Kandahar were founded by Alexander the Great. Much of today's news comes to us from somewhere along your old and new Silk Roads, Peter. The reports from Syria and Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan, and China. The history is for the most part unknown in the West. Why are generals and politicians in Washington seldom can tell the difference between an Arab and a Persian, a jihadi and a mufti? Well, I'm I'm uh, very boring, Lewis. I mean, I'm I'm an academic. I, I sit in my university and I, I try and think and I try and write and. Um, you know, politicians and strategists and policymakers, uh, you know, tend to have to be responding to events and um, are only ever wise after the event. You know, I think that you know, I'm an educator, so I believe that education is the cornerstone of, of everything, of social mobility, of uh, making sure that, that the right people rise to the top, making sure that ideas get tested and proved, uh, making sure that we, that people, politicians and those policymakers make good decisions. What, what, what seems to me to happen is that we react to events. And because we react to events, you're always playing the ball late. 
Uh, and so, as you say, we don't know anything about these regions. Uh, as it happens, we still don't know a great deal about these regions apart from the last 10 or 15 years. And our general view is that it's all a total disaster. But for me, the, what's more interesting to look at now is, is how the world actually hangs together. You know, that uh, you can draw a big circle, all these, all these, all these flashpoints right along the Silk Roads, uh, you know, from, from Turkey, where we had an attempted coup this summer, the Crimea, eastern Ukraine, uh, North, Syria, northern Iraq, Iran, you know, its, it's process of being readmitted into the family of nations, if that is in fact what is happening, total setback in Afghanistan with potential push through now into other parts of Central Asia. You know, there, there's a change of the guard in Uzbekistan right now, as we're speaking, today and then china's push towards india and pakistan you know this is a this is a region of the world that is on the move and to understand what is going to happen you can't do that by trying to look at 2015 and 2016 you know in isolation you need to try to understand the deep history and that you can't do overnight you know that requires reading it requires learning it requires humility of working out what it is that you do and that you don't know uh, but as you rightly say i mean i think that entire heart of the world as i call it in my book, that is where future livelihood is fully dependent right now. That the 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 future of that region will depend how much we pay for our oil, a gas that fills our cars, how much we pay for the food that we eat. You know, world cereal prices went up by twenty percent when there was a, a Russian move into um, the Ukraine. You know that this is a world that is uh, in potentially fragile, but also a world of opportunities too. And it is important that we have skin in the game to try to be at least at the table listening to what participants there are saying. As it happens, it looks to me that we've been very bad at making friends across this region. So we don't like anybody in Russia, in Turkey. We don't like the leadership in any of the countries across the Middle East. Uh, and you know, we, we sort of despair that no one behaves the way that we behave. And, uh, and at some point, there is an arrogance in that view. And there's also a lack of realism that whether we like it or not, this is a world that is moving in front of our eyes. And because it's the region that I specialize in, I can tell you that this isn't a world of pessimism. It's not a world where people are um, complain, you know, attempting to renegotiate with the European Union or to build walls with uh, you know, Mexico or try to uh, opt out of the international arena. It's the other way around. Actually, these countries are acutely aware that they need to get on with each other as neighbors. They're also acutely aware, incidentally, that their track record over the long term of cooperating is much, much greater than, than ours has been in Western Europe. You know, between 1350 and 1950, there wasn't a decade where there wasn't a a major military confrontation between powers in Europe, sometimes played out in other parts of the world. But, you know, we were quick to fight other parts of the world in, in the heart of the world along the Silk Roads. People have always understood that if you fight and you kill and you persecute and so on, uh, that tends to be very bad for your long-term prospects. So this is a world where something is on the move in the early 21st century. There is a process of change, of transition that's recognized by uh, by Washington, D.C. So I wouldn't be too hard on the powers that be there. You know, there is a sense with the pivot, so-called Obama pivot towards Asia, that engaging with China, engaging with with the center of Asia and the heart of Asia is is really critical. And in fact, you know, Hillary Clinton was there in Tajikistan when Gaddafi was shot um, a few years ago. You know, there is a lot of attention being paid by the, the State Department to try to build connections and ties. But it is important also to recognize that in history, 
Europe was essentially irrelevant in the global scheme of things. The West was essentially irrelevant and that Asia has managed to find its own rhythm to build itself up. And, and right now, the big big show in town is, is uh, China's One Belt, One Road initiative, where the Chinese are very keen to secure their own long-term energy and security uh, and food needs, very keen to try to find ways to invest at a time where it's not a bad investment climate if you happen to have good uh, foreign currency reserves and a balance of payments. And the Chinese are trying to make a great deal of effort to try to understand these parts of the world and to try to move away from their own China-centric view that everything that's important is just Chinese. And so it's very interesting to see other parts of the world engage with with my book where India and Pakistan where I, and in China where I've been a few times in the last 12 months, there's a real excitement that history is up for grabs because his history is critical right now in framing the political debate across everywhere east of Venice. You know, what the past looks like, uh, what does Islam look like, what were the origins of Islam look like? You know, so ISIS in their glossy magazines they produce at the moment are constantly talking about the, the 7th century AD or the 7th century of our era where the time after the death of, of the prophet Muhammad, where what Muhammad would have done, what, what, the, the, what his followers should have done, what you should wear, what you should eat. You know, these are, these are influencing the decisions that uh, ISIS make. And so if we don't send our kids to schools to understand that if we don't read about it ourselves and we keep learning about the Gettysburg Address and the Battle of Waterloo and these things from the past that we're very familiar and comfortable with and all stories that have happy endings for us, um, then I think we, we, we just get stuck in a groove. And uh, my mantra, you know, my own children my, you know, uh, and my students is to say that the world is a, is a much bigger place. Look at the map. Uh, look at these regions that, you know, it's embarrassing when you ask uh, you know, well-educated, smart, engaged, curious person, you know, who is the current leading Russian pop star or, you know, who's big, who's, the, you know, who's big in Iranian cinema or which are the best films made in India in the last 20 years or in China, that 70% of the world's population doesn't have a voice in global affairs. And we think of that region, these Silk Roads, as places where bad things happen. You know, Fallujah, uh, Kandahar, uh, Bagram Air Base, the pressure of, uh, of, of Afghanistan. And it's important, I think, to understand that, we're, that those rhythms of history are, you know, they are natural and they are, there's nothing you can do to stop them from happening. But the first stop is always education, reading and learning. That's the importance of your book. You make it clear that a first step toward an understanding of the geopolitical present in Central Asia lies somewhere along the Silk Roads to the historical past. Well, do you know what the, fu the funny thing was? It was it was a real joy to research and write, a proper joy, because, you know, it's been something I, I've been thinking about and doing since, you know, for, for nearly 40 years, uh, learning languages, constantly trying to look and make these connections. And it felt like being able to run around a big green meadow with no barriers. And a problem how we look at history, even how we look at policy, is that we look at Iraq or ISIS on its own. We don't, we don't connect it to anything else. And the world is, you know, is, is this jigsaw puzzle where these pieces do interact and so on. And to be able to step out and, and just look into different areas, regions, and different time, for, time periods, you know, because there are some fantastic historians working on global history or histories of these connected areas, but, you know, but they work on small, narrow time boundaries. And it's, you know, it's, it's like you say, it's a brave thing to try to do to try to stand back and look at it in the, in the round over a much longer period. But, um, 
you know, that, like Braudel said, historians need to be ambitious. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, the, you, you might as well stay in the library, and never publish anything. So I'm very grateful to be on your, on your wonderful podcast. And, um, and I hope people will get a chance to read my book. Peter Frankopan is the author of The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, published by Knopf. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.